I want to welcome you to Young Adults Today podcast, where we talk about reaching young adults in our world today. I'm going to toss it over to our hosts, Micah and Josiah Keneally. What's up, guys? Hope you're feeling alive right now. I'm Micah Keneally, and I want to welcome you to Young Adults Today podcast, where we talk about reaching young adults in our world today. And like always, I'm joined with my husband and co-host, Josiah. Josiah, how you doing? I'm doing great. I've already mentioned this with our guests this morning, but I did our morning jumping routine with our daughter. Um, my heart rate's up. I'm excited. And we're winded. And we're winded a little bit, but we're going to get through <laughs> it, and it's going to be good, but really grateful to be in the studio today with you. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited that we're here with an amazing guest. You just got to get to unpack what's going on in his life and in his heart and what God is doing in that process. So without further ado, Josiah, who is joining us today? Well, I'll introduce him in just a moment, but we're joined today by Barnabas Piper. Barnabas, how are you? I'm doing very well. Really appreciate you asking me to be on. Oh, I am so thrilled that you said yes. I've been following you on Twitter for a really long time, and I showed some of what you've been working on to my wife. I was like, do you think I should reach out? And she's like, um, yes. So the um, yes was all that I needed. <laughs> and Listen, then, listening to your wife is a good rule, so that was wise. And then your re- DM response was, um, yes. Actually, I'm just kidding. You, just, you said, let's go for it. But um, a little bit about Barnabas is he's a husband and the father of two daughters. So he's a fellow girl dad for the listeners out there. Um, he loves to spend time reading, writing, or watching sports. The Pipers reside in the Nashville area where he serves as an assistant pastor at Emmanuel Church of Nashville. He's the author of several books. You've probably come across some of them. One is The Pastor's Kid, Finding Your Own Faith and Identity, Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith, The Curious Christian, How Discovering Wonder Enriches Every Part of Life, and Hoping for happiness, turning life's most elusive feeling into lasting reality. Barnabas also hosts the Happy Rant podcast, and it's just really exciting to have you on the show. So Barnabas, could you just dive in for the listener, maybe into some of your story, your journey of life, faith, and leadership with our our audience today? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I actually grew up in your neck of the woods, so I grew up in downtown Minneapolis, Uh, Not far from where y'all live and um, grew up as a pastor's kid. Uh, My dad is John Piper for anybody who knows that name. He's kind of a, he's one of those guys who's, who's a big fish in a very small pond. You know, if you're, if you're in the evangelical world, you might know who he is. If you're outside that world, he's, he's just some dude you might, you probably never heard of, but um, his, his sort of uh, fame in the Christian world wasn't, didn't play much of a role in my life growing up. What, what did was his role as lead pastor at our church. So um, my parents were really faithful in teaching me and my siblings, the word and consistent in terms of what, what they did in ministry and what they did in the home. And um, so I was just, I was brought up in a really sound Christian environment, a church that was very familial. So my church experience growing up, uh, was largely positive. I know there are a lot of people who experienced church pain, a lot of pastor's kids who had a, you know, their, their family had a contentious relationship with the church. That wasn't the case uh, at all for me. It was, um, it was largely positive. Uh, what in a, from a kind of a spiritual uh, growing up standpoint, there, there was some, uh, some pretty significant challenges though, just in terms of, um, learning what it meant to have my own relationship with Christ. So much was handed to me. Um, My parents' faith was so public and so distinctive that it took me a really long time, like into my 20s, to really learn what it meant for me to have a relationship with Christ that was was meaningful, that was my experience of grace and forgiveness. Um, and, uh, And a lot of that also came out of the fact that despite a really good relationship with the church, being a pastor's kid has challenges. Um, there's a lot of expectations placed on you. There's a lot of observation of you. So people just know who you are in the church and that brings pressure uh, to, to be a certain way, to live up to certain things, or in some of our cases to rebel against certain things because you get sick of it. Um, I kind of tried, I tried all of those, you know, living up to things, rebelling. Um, so yeah, I was a, I became a Christian. I gave my life to Christ young but then had just had a just had kind of a bumpy road for 
a lot of years figuring out what that meant. Went to a Christian college, uh, Wheaton in Illinois, um, and then worked in Christian publishing coming out of that environment. And it was, it was out of college. So I was married and had a couple kids when I really kind of hit a crisis of faith. So I was mid twenties at that point, 26, 27. And, and, a lot of sins in my life came crashing down. Um, and just my, the Lord brought me real low because of my own pride, my own foolishness. And that is also what he used to begin to, to show me who the real Jesus is and what it really means to need grace, to depend on Christ, to what, what the gospel really is, you know, outside of the theological arguments. I was pretty proud of what I knew, but didn't, didn't know Christ well. And so that became kind of a turning point for me in terms of just spiritual flourishing and learning what it, what it meant to follow the Lord in my own life. So both, both work-wise, career-wise, that's when I began writing. Um, so it's been about 10 years ago. And that all came out of the fact that God had to show me who he was and who, who I was in him before I could begin to really bear fruit in any meaningful way. Um, and then, so over the course of the the next 10 years, that actually, that marriage fell apart. I got divorced a few years ago, um, and, and then got remarried this year. So again, that was an instance of the Lord bringing me through a really challenging, difficult, probably the most painful thing I've ever been through. Um, but he built on the foundation that he'd already given me of this is what faith is. And this is who I am. This is what it means for me to be faithful to you. So that during that crisis, I was able to, to stay strong in faith. uh, Even if that just meant sort of clinging by my fingernails, sometimes I I wouldn't say I was flourishing, but I was, I never felt abandoned by God. Um, And then in the last few years, my life has taken a significant turn. I went from working in publishing about a year and a half ago to joining the staff at Emmanuel where I'm, where I currently serve. So I started as a director overseeing small groups and then just recently moved into a pastoral role, um, was called into that. And that is, it's very surreal because as a pastor's kid, as somebody who's been through the ups and downs that I have faith wise, life wise, I just didn't anticipate that being a direction God would bring me, but, uh, he knows best. And here I am. Sorry, that was that was a long answer, but no, that's great. I'm trying to pack it all in. I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad you shared everything you did. Yeah, thanks for sharing the highs and the lows, and just the the realizing that when you are a pastor's kid, the eyes are on you. Like you're almost in a fishbowl. They know who you are, but you may not know the congregation as a kid, or may not think, you know, how intensely that they are having expectations being placed on you, more or less. And Josiah and I, neither of us have grown up as pastors, kids or anything like that. But we just had our first daughter um, in this pandemic. She is oh, she's a cutie. <laughs> <laughs> she's uh, almost nine months old already, which is just crazy to think I about. Know. But I would just be curious, like just the topic of finding your own faith in an identity as a pastor's kid, because Josiah and I, we are both pastors, raising a pastor's or raising a child. And are you willing to share just your experience of growing up and finding your own faith and identity, um, whatever that may look like? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, that is such a, that's such a seminal part of, of, you know, my, my story of faith. Um, but what, what stands out to me is as I've talked to other pastors, kids of kind of of all ages. So some who are a decade or two older than me, some who are in their teens now, the similarities for kids who grow up in ministry families are, are striking. Wow. Um, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not all the same, but you can find a point of commonality about expectations, about pressure, about that one conversation when somebody told you you're not allowed to do that because you're a pastor's kid, those kinds of things. Um, all of which is very, is very shaping. So, um, yeah, there, there was kind of two two aspects of it that I found to be the most challenging in retrospect. Although at the time I couldn't have identified either of them very well. The first was the outside expectations. So just you mentioned the fishbowl. That's a great metaphor. Um, that uh, that idea of you're just you're just living your life, but people are observing you in a in a way that other kids don't get observed. So they're aware of you. And it's almost all good intentioned. Most people in the church are not out to 
to be frustrating or cause harm. They, right. they're trying to be kind. They're trying to be friendly. They're either good folks. Um, but they don't realize that if 12 different people on a Sunday come up and ask you a personal question, you feel like everybody's watching you, wow. you know? So, wow. I mean, I remember instances of, um, I mean, there was the obvious instances of people correcting me who didn't have any business correcting me. You shouldn't listen to that music. You shouldn't listen to that music that loud, you know, no running in church, whatever it was. And I'm like, I don't even know who you are. Leave me alone. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, that kind of thing. But then, but it was the, um, it was the other instances where people would ask friendly personal questions, you know, about how was your football game on Friday? I don't know your name. You know who I am. I don't know who you are, but you're asking me about something in my life. Right. And so again, they probably had a really good heart in it, but my perception was I'm under scrutiny. And out of that comes the expectation that I have to live up to. I can't disappoint them. I can't, uh, I'm going to, somebody's going to tattle on me if I step out of line and every kid steps out of line. So it, it can lead to a sense, you know, you can hide things, hypocrisy. It doesn't feel safe to kind of be yourself and be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, unless somebody has very explicitly said, this is a place where you get to just be you. So you can, you can unburden yourself of your frustrations, your, your sins or whatever it is. Um, and I didn't really feel like I had that in most contexts. Um, so as parents of, uh, you know, a, a ministry kid or a pastor's kid, that's the thing you can, you can try to do at home is acknowledge what, whatever they might be facing out there and say, but this is a place where like, we really know you, we really love you and you can really be yourself, wow. that kind of thing. Um, so that, that outside expectation was one of the greatest challenges. The other one was just the internal like I said, that, that, um, the genuineness of faith, I, I gave my life to Christ at six or seven. And so from that point on, I, you know, I, I followed Jesus, but it wasn't the, it wasn't the kind of thing where I really understood what it meant to give my life to Christ. I mean, I could argue points of theology till I was blue in the face but I didn't understand true repentance and true forgiveness, you know, right. kind of those real basic essential things in Christianity, those things that are so freeing. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know what it meant for Jesus to really love me and to really forgive me um, until he showed me that there really isn't another way because, because I, I screwed up enough. Um, and so I think oftentimes pastors kids have that where they've, They've kind of adopted the faith and theology and worldview and arguments of their parents. And at some point you come into friction with that, either because you realize I don't even agree with this or because you just come to the place of going, I don't even, I don't even know if this is mine. Sure. I don't, sure. you know? And so like my relationship with my parents now is probably as good as it's ever been, but our disagreements are probably as clear as they, they've ever been. Just things that mm -hmm. I don't, I don't see the same way they do. Now the foundations of faith are the same. We believe in the same Christ. We believe in the same gospel, but whether it's, you know, views on how things should be run in the church or some of those, could you call them like secondary issues, peripheral mm -hmm. issues? We just don't agree on. Um, and that's perfectly fine now because the foundation is the same, but at like 18 to 25, I didn't know what to do with that because everything was kind of tied up. It all felt like it was, adopted as a, you know, handed to me as opposed to this is mine. I, I own this. So that, that aspect was really challenging as well and harder to work out. I think the expectations one was a little bit easier um, simply because you can free yourself from the circumstance. And after a while you just grow in confidence enough to know that I'm going to do what I'm going to do because I believe it's right or because I have a conviction and it doesn't matter what that lady says or that guy says the identity piece was harder because that's internal and is, I mean, that's, that is how you view yourself, how you view the Lord, how you view life through those lenses. Mm -hmm. That's phenomenal insight. I think to help someone like me have eyes into this situation, because one of the things that was in a defining moment for me, I think we were expecting Aurora at the time. And one of our good friends is, the son of a well-known pastor in the area. And I was just talking to him about his life, everything going on. And he's like, Hey, I didn't ask for any of this. Yep. 
And that was really an eye-opening moment right. for me, Barnabas, because I realized that, you know what? None of us choose what family we're born into or necessarily the career of our parents. And um, I think it was just eye-opening some of the pressures that maybe he's experienced as a young adult. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm just curious mm -hmm. for the young leader listening who happens to be a pastor's kid themselves, do you have any insight for them as they're navigating, maybe they're in the thick of it in their late teens, mm -hmm. early 20s, trying to figure out their faith, trying to figure out their identity, and then try and navigate also vocation of like, is ministry for me? Yeah. Um, and, and is it not for me? Like any insight for them as they're kind of navigating their way in the thick of it right now? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, that's a sweeping question just because people are going to be coming at it in so many different places. Some people in that, in that spot are going to be very, very um, close to embittered, you know, resentful of their upbringing, possibly of the church, have a, a real skepticism. Others might just be more in a place of, of, you know, it's a bit foggy. They're trying to navigate something that's not clear. I mean, I think all of us in our late teens, early 20s had some level of fogginess about what happens next, um, just because, you know, you're, you're starting to make decisions as an adult and figure out trajectory and all those things. Um, I think the first thing, thinking specifically of navigating the, if there's tension, if there's bitterness, if there's um, a difficulty of, do I even believe what I was handed, those kinds of things. Um, is to remember, I mean, one of the, one of the most difficult things to hold on to, especially in our culture and maybe uniquely for pastors, kids is that we don't define ourselves. What we, what, how we view ourselves is not the defining aspect of ourselves, who God is and how God defines us is. So we need to start there. And that was something that I, I didn't know how to come to that until a wiser, older mentor, basically, when I was in that real crisis of faith, he just said, as much as it's up to you, discard all of this, all the, all the flannel graph, Sunday school knowledge, Bible stories, theological points, pitch it all onto it, you know, put it in the garage, just, just store it for later and start reading the gospels to pay attention to who Jesus is. Amazing. Who is this Jesus that you do or do not believe in? Mm -hmm. and let him let him define reality for you and uh and it worked not i mean it wasn't a light switch it was just this slow dawning thing mm -hmm. and um it was about halfway through mark when you get to the story where jesus is healing uh or rather casts out the demon from a young man whose father has brought him and it, at one point jesus says i can help if you believe and the father's response is i believe help my unbelief and that became kind of a paradigm for me mm -hmm. to be able to say, I know that there are certain things I do believe. And then I just have a pile of questions, a pile of uncertainties, a pile of difficulties navigating. So that means I get to, in a single sentence, look at God and say, I believe I have faith. Wow. I trust Christ. <laughs> now, would you please help me with all of these things that I don't know how to believe, or I don't know what to believe in. And so that paradigm is really helpful, whether it's an identity thing, a, a trajectory thing, a career thing. Um, as it pertains to pursuing ministry, I have two kind of thoughts on that. One is don't push it. Um, you are not obligated to it. You didn't grow up in an apprenticeship. Um, going into vocational ministry is something that God's hand should be in, not something that you're like, well, it's all I know. So I'm going to do this. That's just mercenary ministry. Wow. And, and that's not a reason to do it. That's, you know, ministry is about the gospel or it's not about anything. Mm -hmm. So, um, so don't force it. If you're not sure, go do something else and God will make it sure. It took me uh, 15 years after college to get to the place of vocational church ministry being something that God very clearly wanted me in. Now I was part of a church that whole time. I was invested. I was a member, but, but it wasn't until, you know, I had run the string out on, on other things and, and had some success in it. I wasn't, it wasn't like I was miserable in my work for 15 years. God just had a season of all of this stuff needs to happen to clarify where you need to be. So don't push it. If you're not sure, do something else, pay your bills, doing something else and, and wait for God to make it clear while you're invested in the church. Cause that, that's a, that's a non-negotiable. 
The second piece is, and this is the more positive, if you grew up in a ministry home, you are uniquely prepared for ministry if and when that time comes. You will walk into it with a different awareness of the highs and the lows, all Hmm. the things God can do and all the terrible things that people can do. Wow. And that puts you in a spot to be able to minister in a, in a fresh way to have different empathy for people, to be more confident that God can restore, convert, et cetera. So you have things in your, uh, your memories, your kind of ministry toolbox that other people don't walk in with. It's crazy. And that's so, so don't force your way into ministry, but if God calls you into it, like he, he loaded you up with some things that other people don't have. And that's a blessing. Yeah, I think it's a good reminder for even for us as parents who are pastors, not to put our calling onto our daughter or our daughter or our children, future children to think that they need to walk in our footsteps, you know, so to know that they can navigate the waters of their faith, their identity, and take them and point them back to the word of God, point them to Christ, point them to the Holy Spirit. And that's obviously a challenging thing. And even in this world in which we're living right now, we know that there are many, many challenging things. I don't even have to say, I can say one word and you'll know every other one. But just thinking of people who are currently functioning in a ministry role or who were maybe stepping into their first ministry role the beginning of 2020 and 2020 and the pandemic and isolation and everything else was nothing that anybody anticipated, whether it was first year in ministry or their 51st year in ministry, it doesn't really matter. And I think a lot of people are struggling right now finding finding hope maybe they're having to shut down their churches maybe they're in a financial crisis that they can't and don't know if they can continue to open their doors or keep them open maybe they're um, really had a pivot we've had a lot of friends have to pivot in the rural areas that were never doing things online and they're like scrambling like oh my gosh we got to get some stuff together how do we do this so it's obviously forced um, us as people and humans to be very very um, moldable and being able to acclimate to the changes around us in a positive way to still provide the gospel, the word of God and relationships and community with our, the people that we're leading. And I think a lot of people are struggling literally right now coming out of 2020, obviously coming into 2021, realizing that a new year doesn't necessarily make everything better. So can (laughs) we just talk about like the lasting hope? We know that you have a passion for hope for happiness can you just yeah. talk about that lasting hope and how can we get to that point and we find ourselves as a listener kind of in the dumps? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the, so the book that, that I had come out actually like mid pandemic, which was not planned because I finished writing it before COVID was a thing on anybody's radar screen. And then it released in October was called hoping for happiness. Oh, and nice. one of the things that I wrote about in there was, um, was was having a re- realistic and biblical expectations for what does happiness look like in this life? That's kind of the gist of the book is what is happiness supposed to look like for us as Christians? When you have, you know, you have this whole array of God has given us a bunch of good gifts. There's things that we are meant to enjoy. It's not enjoying them kind of the right way. But then you have Bible verses that say in this life, you will have trouble. Like that's Jesus telling his disciples that in this life, you're going to have trouble. And I think I want to say it's First Peter, I can't remember where he says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. You essentially have these biblical warnings that are like, hey, it's going to be hard. And there's other places where it says, you know, the gospel is foolishness. So you're going to be mocked. People are not going to want to hear what you have to say. Um, And so what does happiness look like in the face of that? And and so I think we have to have this this twofold, kind of a two-layered reality that, that we hold on to all the time. The first is... Um, realizing that eternity defines our happiness as Christians. And that sounds, that sounds a little bit sort of out of touch with reality. Like, oh, you're just surviving this life until you get to heaven. But that's not what I mean. It's the, the fact that mortality and the fact that we're, we're living a very temporary life. Mm-hmm. And, and if this year has taught us anything, it's that it's more temporary than we realized. You know, if you're 20, you think you're going to live forever, but you're not, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so we have this window of time defined by reality with Christ. Well, if it's reality with Christ, that means that we get to throw ourselves into this life with a different sort of 
enjoyment, a different sort of abandon, a different sort of like if you're giving up and groveling, like ah, oh, like you're wasting your time, right? Wow. And you're wasting you're wasting the minutes that God has given you to to really enjoy life, but also to really live in a meaningful, purposeful way in whatever your vocation is. Um, and that's, and that's regardless of what sort of losses and pivots you've had to make, um, lost loved ones, lost jobs, lost churches. Like it, it, people have taken it on the chin this year, mm-hmm. but, but what I just said still is true. The second reality is that every good gift comes from above. So I see you drinking out of a mug there. I've got my coffee here. Like that's a good gift. So every time we enjoy one of these pleasurable things, you talked about, you know, playing with your daughter, doing your morning jumping routine. Like that sounds fun. And it's supposed to be (laughs) pandemic or not, you know, financial struggle or not. Life is just riddled with things that are supposed to turn our eyes to God and say, I can't believe that our good father gave us this good gift. Right. You know, in, uh, I think, I think it's in Matthew seven, maybe where he says, if you who are evil, and he doesn't play around. He's not like, if you who struggle sometimes, like, nope, you evil ones can give good gifts to your children. How much more will the father in heaven who is perfect give good gifts? And that being the case, we have, we have things for which to be grateful every day. And so that, that ties together this eternal reality with the, the coffee and the jumping with your child and the laughing with a friend realities, because those things point us to the fact that we get to have a perfect version of that forever and ever. So in the meantime, like we have to live our life both with enjoyment and with purpose until we get to that eternity. Barnabas, that is huge what you just touched on, because I think one of my greatest fears, giving my life to Christ at a young age, I was five years old, at the Billy Graham Crusade at the Metrodome downtown Minneapolis. I was there. I was there on youth night. No way. That's the night. That was the night. And what's crazy is that was a lifelong decision for me, but the only fear that I had or maybe hesitation that came into my mind sometimes was this myth that I believed that following Jesus was going to be boring. (laughs) Yes. You know what I mean? There is that fear if you've grown up in church and attended enough services or gatherings or events. Give your life to Christ every Sunday. Right, right. That too. I did that too. Definitely. And um, what you just touched on is like, there's a part of my heart that loves a thrill, that loves adrenaline, that like, whether it's adventure of visiting the Grand Canyon or trying something new like parasailing or just running, like anything that is like an enjoyment in this life, I want to experience it and have fun. Like I I just, Mm -hmm. one of, we we said when we got married, one of our core values is fun. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really curious, like what gives you the confidence, maybe Barnabas, that we can hold on to hope and have lasting joy in the process of like adventure, in the process of sometimes it's adrenaline, but sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's like an assortment of emotions, but there is an eternal glory and hope that is secure that we hold on to. So what, like, yeah, what and you I think I would turn that around just a little bit and say that, yeah, the, the confidence that, that I have in that is not in me holding on to it, but it's, it's in the Lord holding on to me. I mean, if, if God's character and God's promises are anything, it's that he will be faithful. I mean, he makes it real clear throughout scripture that we won't be. You know, we are, we're pretty incapable of holding on to him, but in the same way that you will never drop your daughter, whether or not she's holding on to you, wow. like that's going to give her the confidence that like confidence in dad. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we have that version of a father who will not let us go. And we, over time, we do get better at continuing to believe and remember. So when we doubt, when we fear, or when we're, enjoying ourselves to the max, both of those things turn our eyes to the father. One of them turning our eyes to the father for the comfort and the, the kind of the restoration that we need. And the other turning our eyes to the father with, I can't believe you gave me this. I can't believe you gave me this, this amazing experience, whatever it is, you know, whether it's an adventure or something, something more mundane. And, and it's that it's the fact that 
God has declared real clearly who he is and how he intends to hold on to his children. Uh, if, if we don't just flee from him. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> if we avoid fleeing, he's got us. And, and, and as life goes on, I'm, I'm 37 and I believe that more now than I did at 27 wow. and I anticipate at 47, it's going to be even more obvious because there'll be another decade of God showing me all of the ways that he is faithful and gives good gifts. So in, in the worst and in the most enjoyable aspects of life. That's so good. Barnabas, one of our prayers as a couple is to have a childlike spirit and never lose our wonder, you know, to never lose the, the mystery of God, to never lose the excitement of what he has, to never lose the thrill of reading the word of God and knowing that we can apply it, to know when we pray, he hears our prayers and he bends down his ear to us, like they say in Psalms. And it's just so fun and thrilling to know that and to be able to experience the big things, the small things and celebrate everything. And we know that this podcast is kind of geared toward young adult ministry young adult leaders. And many times we, we realize there's depression, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's doubt, there's worry. There's new statistics saying that um, 66% of young adults don't think that a, anybody as an adult believes in them. They don't feel supported. So one in three might feel support from a parent, a pastor, somebody along the way. And to us, that's just heartbreaking to realize yeah. you walk around on a campus, or you walk around in the church. And if you, you know, kind of keep those statistics in your mind, knowing that, oh my word, like we're called to do young adult ministry and make a difference and live with purpose and impact the people around us. And we just don't want to overlook that generation. So this podcast is obviously reaching the next generation in our world, as long as God will have us here. And I saw a question like, what do you believe or why do you believe that young adult ministry is so important? Is there anything yeah. that you experience in your young adult years that is like that aha moment? Or do you have anything as now that you're 37 looking back, like this next generation matters and here's why? Yeah, I, I mean, practically speaking, young adults are, are the next kind of powerhouse of society. They're the next leaders, they're the next business owners, they're the next pastors. You know, if if we are not discipling a 18 or 22 year old, then who's gonna who's gonna pastor us when we're old? Right. You know, like I I just I just in the last couple of years made the transition into being older than my senior pastor. I've got him by like three months. So it's not oh my gosh. but <laughs> but that's a you know that that's a but I don't know, you know, hopefully the Lord gives them a long run. But if, uh, you know, say we have a pastoral transition in 15 years. So I'm, I'm in my fifties and a new 35 year old steps in as senior pastor. Who's forming that guy now so that he's, so that he's leading people as they approach their deathbeds, as they give birth to children, as they go through marriage loss, whatever it is. So, I mean, young adult ministry is, is vital for the life of the church. And I, when I say church, I mean like local churches, but also just the big C church. I think the other aspect is nobody in the world has more um, both capacity and desire to go do great things mm-hmm. than, than young adults. Cause they just haven't bought into the idea that they can't yet. Right. You know, they haven't gotten kind of the, uh, the, uh, the shine knocked off them yet, which, you know, makes them prone to be a little bit insane sometimes, but also like a little bit of insanity does a lot of great things for Jesus too. So <laughs> if, if we're not pouring in, they're going to go do great things in entrepreneurial business or in, you know, app development or whatever, all of which is good. But what about that innovation and that energy and that passion pointed at missions, at evangelism, at local church ministry, at feeding the hungry and whatever, like the kinds of things that really show Jesus to the world. So those are, I mean, those are just two things that come to mind when I think if, if we are not pouring into 18, 20, 25 year olds, we are, you know, we're missing it. And then, and we're doing a disservice to the future of the representation of Christ to the world. That's great. 
That is powerful. And I think it resonates a hundred percent with our hearts of why we do what we do is, um, I love what you said too, Barnabas, about the insanity, a little bit of insanity <laughs> does great things for Jesus. And, and I, I love that about college students, about the fearlessness, about the passion, about, like you said, the time, the bandwidth, the capacity and the abundance of heartbeat and desire and energy. That's just uh, I think exhilarating for me to be around and it exciting for me to be around because it, it reminds me of ins inspiration and excitement. And one off script question that I have for you is one of the shared passions besides the Minnesota Vikings and twins <laughs> sports that you and I and Micah share um, is writing. We both love to blog and write and just um, put like, something to words. I think that words carry weight. They matter. They mean something. And like, what would your insight on the writing process be to young writers, to young leaders? And maybe they have a blog, maybe they have books that are inside them. And could you just go there and talk about writing for a few minutes? Yeah, I love talking writing. So I'll try to keep it to just a few minutes. Um, it's a couple things come to mind. The first is, um, don't write to get published. You know, if, if publication happens, if that's an opportunity that, that you find, that's great. But if that's your, if that's your objective from the get go, um, that usually is going to, A, it'll probably end in disappointment because publication, I mean, I've had, I've had four books published in a Bible study and I still feel like, Oh, all of them could be better. I could have done better at them. They could have sold better. Like just, there's no arrival point on that front. Wow. Um, and, and there's usually ego attached to it, which is a dangerous thing. You know, writing for publication is often tied to writing for pride, for, for um, gaining a reputation and those kinds of things. So don't, don't do that. Write for the message. The, the two things that a writer should, should do, I mean, I'm setting aside fiction writers because I don't know a lot about fiction writing. So if that's, if that's, if there's a listener who's into that, this is not aimed at you. Um, in nonfiction writing, your writing should be, you should be trying to write something that is as true and beautiful as possible. So you're writing message and then you want to improve the quality. So perpetually be trying to better your writing, you know? So that means like do, do the hard work of figuring out, self-editing and, and grammar and those just those nitty-gritty things you know whether it's a a writing seminar or reading books like uh on writing well by william zinzer or on writing by stephen king or bird by bird by Anne lamott i mean there's a bunch um so there's just the skill set but the other is hone in on your message writing is message it's not product we have we have we have turned everything into product in an age where, you know, we, we want to sell, we want to spin, we want to use this as an inspirational quote on our Instagram, whatever. Like writing only matters if it tells people something true. And it doesn't matter if it tells one person something true or, or, you know, a thousand people, your reach is not really up to you. Mm -hmm. And so it just focused on truth and beauty in your writing, truth and quality. Beauty, beauty takes on different forms. In some cases, it's just minimalistic, clean lines. And in other cases, it's sort of like flowery and big and beautiful and people have different styles and that's great. So I think but the, the message and the quality are the two things that people just need to hammer home on all the time or it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. or your writing just doesn't matter. Um, just practically speaking, a couple things that come to mind are, um, you'll, you'll hear some people say you need to write every day. I don't think that's true for most people uh, because it's just not something we have the capability of doing. We have you know children and work and responsibilities, but do something every day that benefits your writing. Wow. So if that's journaling, if that's reading, if mm. that's making notes in your phone of ideas that you're like, I might, I need to process this one out and chew on that. Um, so do something every day that, that helps your writing. Um, and then, and then if you're, if you're a reluctant writer, so, you know, you've got notebooks full of, of bits and pieces, but you've never put it into the world, mm -hmm. hit publish on something. 
you know, mm -hmm. put it on a blog, send it to somebody in an email, whatever, just to, to get eyes on it because writing is meant to be read. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's sometimes we put pen to paper and it's just for us. Like I have journals full of things that are just for me. It's between me and God. That's, it's, it's part of my, how I manage any sort of a prayer life. But if you're writing anything that you think might benefit somebody else, publish it somewhere, wow. you know, and, and then, and then learn from the feedback. You will probably a get more positive feedback than you anticipate. People are not as mean as you think they will be. Wow. And, and then also get, have one or two friends who can tell you this would be clearer. If this would be better, if the constructive critic friends, uh, who will, who will look at it and go, here's how to, here's how to improve. So those are, those are a handful of things. I'm sure I could go on and on, but that's just kind of off the top of my head. Oh, I'm so grateful that I, it popped into my head to ask you that. And I know <laughs> it's off script. So thank you for your willingness to just share your experience and your insight. But I think that that is, um, I took notes on all of that. So that's something that benefited me and I pray it benefits others who maybe just enjoy mm -hmm. wordsmithing and playing with words yeah. and whether it is to just start journaling to start hitting publish on something or to focus on truth and beauty and, and hone the message and hone the quality. Yeah. I think that's so helpful, Barnabas. That is yeah, absolutely. And Barnabas, we've reached one of our favorite parts of the podcast where we get to do five in five. So it's five questions in five minutes. So we have 60 seconds for each answer. Are you ready for the challenge? Yeah, let's do this thing. Okay. And P.S. Some of them, we don't even know what we're about to ask you. <laughs> I have a deck of questions right here. So, so fair warning, if you're still up for it. <laughs> yeah. Freestyle. That just makes it sound more fun. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So question number one, Barnabas. Ooh, what's, be what's the best thing about being a grown-up and what's the hardest thing about being a grown-up? Hashtag adulting. Yeah. Um, the best thing about being a grown up is, uh, is freedom. You know, you, you have the freedom to make your own decisions about your finances, about your commitments of time, all of your resources. Um, and so you just, and my kids regularly look at me and they'll go, why do you get to eat ice cream at 9am? Cause I can, <laughs> um, the downside of being an adult is responsibility and consequences. So for example, if I choose to eat ice cream at 9am, the consequences, uh, I better hit the gym with a little more fervor. Uh, so there's the responsibility for all of those things as well. All of the things you are, you have freedom in, you have responsibility for, you have to manage your finances. Well, you have to manage your time. Well, you have to prioritize. Well, you have to invest in relationships so that the fruit is great but the cost is high. And uh, I think that that balancing those is the, the best and worst part of being an adult. And you can start adding coffee to your ice cream. So you can tell them that will stunt your Yeah. <laughs> so I just tell them that adults get to do things that kids don't get to do. Like, why do you, you don't follow the same rules as me. That's life's not fair. There you go. <laughs> and one of the other things that I just picked this random off the um, deck, but I know that a lot of young adults love to travel. And this question is about travel. It says, Barnabas, what are five things every visitor to this country should see? They could be anything. So, so our country to the U.S.? Yep. yep. Okay. Five things every visitor to the U.S. needs to see. Um, I think... Uh, New York City, Manhattan particularly, is there is uh, there's not another city like it in the United States, um, and it's it's world class. Uh, Chicago, I used to live there, and uh, just again, it is a it's so different than New York, but again, world class city. Also, you will eat yourself to death there and enjoy it every step of the way. Giordano's um, question mark. I'm a Lou Malnati's guy myself. Okay. Giordano's is good. Lou Malnati's is better. Um, let's see. So that's two. Um, I would say, um, I would say the Great Smoky Mountains. So like Smoky Mountain National Park. Mm -hmm. um, somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. 
-hmm. So the, the, the mountains on either side, yep. um, because they're so uniquely different just in terms of, in terms of both geography and beauty, but then also just the culture of the places. It's true. Um, and then lastly, as a Minnesotan, you will appreciate this. My favorite place on earth, which is the boundary waters. Oh yes. Oh my gosh. It's brilliant. In, in mid, mid to late summer. So you go, you go before or after that, you might freeze to death, but like late June in the boundary waters is as close to heaven as I've ever experienced. So those are my five. Excellent. Bring your bug spray if you intend on traveling there. <laughs> yeah, right. no kidding. Bring a, a tennis racket for the mosquitoes. <laughs> the ones with a little electrical currents. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the third question is, what is something you want to teach your children someday? Um, budgeting. It's really boring, but it's something that I didn't learn until I was a grown up. And so my older daughter is almost old enough to go get a job and she's, she just turned uh, 15. And so, um, yeah, so budgeting with an eye towards generosity and just managing finances well, uh, with a side of learning the cost of compound interest um, <laughs> or the cost and benefit. So if you invest wisely with interest, things are great. If you spend foolishly with interest, it costs you a ton. So I think that's, uh, that's, that's boring, but something I really want them to understand as they grow into adulthood. That is so fun. That's one of my passions. I wrote a book on student loans and really the idea of debtless, um, graduating with little to no debt. Mm -hmm. So if you want, I'll uh, message you and I'll send you her a copy for free. Man, so, that would be amazing. Thank you. Of course. And um, if you could ask us, we just gave you three curveballs and you hit home yep. run. But if you could ask us any question today, what would it be, Barnabas? How did y'all meet? Oh, okay. We actually met at church. Um, but I was living in North Dakota. I was praying for my future spouse and I said, God, I want a dream and a vision of his face tonight. And that was of April, 2014. And I was praying and fasting probably for three years total, every 40 days, 40 days soul fast I went through. And I had a vision of this guy on this bridge in the city, black twins hat on just like that black jacket, bright blue eyes, stone arch bridge, stone arch bridge. And I didn't know that. No, in my well, because I have never been there. So I was like, okay, Lord, I woke up angry. I was like, what the heck? I'm like, Lord, I don't even know anybody who looks like that. And I was mad because I didn't know who this person was. And then God's like, do you want what I have for you? And I was like, yes, I had to repent. I'm like, yes, Lord, I want I, wherever he is, wherever you're going to bring us together, take me there. And then I ended up enrolling in a school downtown Minneapolis, going back to school for ministry. And then I walked onto the Stone Arch Bridge, realizing that is the bridge for my dream. And I just hadn't had the guy yet. And God's like, I will bring you together in my time. I walked into church one day and I said, Lord, I want to know the heart of this church. I want to see worship, the pastor's message. I want to know, like, what are they about? Where should I sit? What service should I go to? And I shook his hand and I shook his hand. He goes, hi, my name's Josiah. And I'm like, I'm Micah. And God goes, yep. There's a person from my dream. So I had to pray into that process, not thinking he was the one, but praying, Lord, if he is the one, you need to make it clear to him in your time. So that's a little backstory. That, it, that, boy, it would have been a little weird if you walked up and were like, well, you're the man of my dreams. Right? <laughs> Literally. She, she didn't say that. But what um, caused the resistance on my part at first is we had a mutual friend and he brought her to the church and he was interning at the time with us, with our youth and young adult ministry. And he goes, PS, I just found your future wife. And I didn't like when people said <laughs> things like that because people try to set me yep, up yep. all the time. But then we started serving together in ministry. We were friends for a year and just truly fell in love. Like yeah. really fun adventure. And um, it's- Then he proposed at the Grand Canyon. Yes. So one of my favorite places. So that is how. Man, that's awesome. That was a little longer than. I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> that's a great question. Okay, go Am ahead. My turn. Yes. Yeah. Your turn. Yeah. Final question. If you could tell a group of college pastors and young adult ministry leaders one thing today, what would you leave them with? Um. Man, one thing. I think I would tell them not to be ashamed of the gospel, um, which 
which can which can take on a lot of faces, but more and more, especially especially amongst younger Christians, the very idea of a definitive gospel that says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he gets to define all the rest of the truth is really uncomfortable. It flies in the face of the kind of self self-actualization of, of you know what people how people view truth it flies in the face of the whole narrative of that's your truth and this is my truth right. and it's real easy to be embarrassed when you say no I, I really do believe in jesus and i really do believe that that this is this is what people need because it sounds like nonsense to people but the jesus told us that was going to happen you know that and so don't be ashamed of the gospel don't be aggressive with the gospel. Like the gospel is offensive all by itself to people. You don't need to be offensive on its behalf. Um, But, but just, if you believe it, believe it. And then let the Holy spirit do what he does through your faithfulness and conviction and whatever sort of proclamation your life allows you to do, whether it's a preaching one or a conversation or the, the mode of living that you have, whatever it is, but just do not be ashamed of the gospel because of, of all of the things that we need right now, whether it's that generation or just society as a whole, it is a real clear, humble conviction in the gospel. Amen. Amen is right, man. Barnabas, we just want to say thank you so much for that download and for the many downloads in our conversation today. We really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Oh, it has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. It's uh, it's an honor to be asked and I really enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. So fun. And listeners, you can find out more about Barnabas Piper, his books, and his content when you connect with us on our website at youngadults.today, as well as we will link it to the show notes on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time, this is Josiah and Micah signing off with Young Adults Today. Thanks for listening to today's conversation on the Young Adults Today podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast.